Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my statues, I teach them. Then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, for his dwelling saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David, and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. As humans, as Christians, as Jesus followers, we tend to put God on the shelf. We place him there, we leave him there, and then we walk away and carry on with our lives. Now, we put him on the shelf for many reasons. Uh, Our sin causes us to put God on the shelf. Uh, Our pride causes us to put God on the shelf. Our packed schedules, our busyness causes us to put God on the shelf. Um, Our weariness causes us to put God on the shelf. Our bitterness or thirst for revenge causes us to put God on the shelf. Our greed causes us to put God on the shelf. Our disobedience, our unbelief, they both cause us to put God on the shelf. Our, Our fear of being exposed causes us to put God on the shelf. In fact, you might say that the Christian life is the repetitive loop of making God central and then putting him on the shelf and then taking him down off the shelf and then putting him back on the shelf and then taking him down off the shelf over and over again. It goes on the shelf, off the shelf, on the shelf, off the shelf. And in some way, uh, the battle for the centrality of God uh, will never end this side of eternity. And so this morning, I want you to locate God in your lives. Is he the centerpiece of your life right now, or has he been relegated to the shelf, hidden behind an expired box of cereal, or a half-used bottle of olive oil, or an empty box of crackers? Is he there, in there, somewhere? Well, he shouldn't be there. He's the rightful centerpiece of your life. But God is patient and he loves you and he waits for you to bring him out again to realize that life only makes sense, that life only works when God, when Jesus is right at the center of your life. 
And when you do take him down off that shelf, when you do give him first place uh, in your life, here's the thing that you will realize, that God is too big for shelves or cupboards or shrines or sanctuaries or buildings. He doesn't fit. Stephen says this in uh, Acts chapter 7 verse 48, however the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, much less shelves. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen said that we're missing the point if we don't make our entire lives about Jesus. And then just a few minutes later, Stephen is dragged out of the city and murdered. Friends, God is too big to stay on the shelves of your lives. And there are people who have laid down their lives trying to communicate that message. It's so important and so vital. He's too important and worthy and majestic to, you know, to be relegated to your own personal bench warmer. Friends, God made the shelf that you're trying to put him on. God made the shelf that you're trying to put him on. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 132, it's the last but one um, message in this series on, um, on, on journey songs, on the Psalms of Ascent. Next week we'll do both Psalm 133 and Psalm 144 together, but, but this morning Psalm 132 uh, is a psalm about taking God down from the shelf. You see, God's people had put God on a shelf They'd sidelined him and they'd left him there for 20 years, for 20 years. Let me explain. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, God tells Moses and his people to, to build a box with handles on the side and angels on top with wings extended. And, and in that box went the Ten Commandments, a symbol of the relationship that God had with his people. Now, why did God tell them to build a box? Well, God's invisible, right? And so the people needed to be reminded that God was with them, that he loved them, and that he was for them even when they couldn't see him. And so this box was a representation of the relationship that God had with them, even when they couldn't see him. And this box was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where God and humans could meet. Okay, fast, fast, fast forward. God's people have entered the promised land. They've settled. They've had many judges who've spoken God's words to the people. But God's people haven't yet had a king because God is their king. Now there's a battle in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and the Ark of the Covenant is captured, is, is captured by the Philistines who are Israel's enemies. And, and then the Philistines go and place God's Ark in their temple and then they wake up in the morning to find out that the statue of their God is face down in front of the Ark. And so the Philistines freak out and they send the Ark away and eventually the Ark ends up at this place called Kiriath-Jearim, a place out in the boonies of Judah. 
Now, this place, Kiriath Jearim, actually means forest region, and it really is the boonies. And in our psalm, Psalm 132, this place, Kiriath Jearim, or the forest region, is referred to in verse 6 by the nickname Jaar, J A A R, Jaar. And so God's and so God's ark um, stays there in Jaar in the boonies for 20 years. God is on the shelf. Now, in this time in the 20 years, uh, against God's wishes, Saul becomes king and he turns out to be a bad king. And eventually he's killed on the battlefield. Then, uh, then David, whose Saul's son-in-law, is made king of Judah first and then He's made king of Israel. And the first thing that David does as king in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is he goes to Kiriath Jearim. He goes to Jaar. He goes to the forest region. He goes out into the boonies and he brings the ark to Jerusalem. And that's what verse 6 through verse 9 in Psalm 132 is all about. It says, uh, we, we heard it in Ephrathah, which is, um, uh, which is which is another word for Bethlehem, which is where David was from. Um, we we came upon it um, in the fields of Jaar. We so we came aco- we came upon the ark in the fields of uh, 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 of Jaar. This place, Kiriath Jearim, or the forest region. Verse seven. Let us go to his dwelling place. Uh, let us worship at his footstool. So there in Jaar, and say, verse eight. Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So they hear about the ark from the people of Ephrathah. They find it in the forest region of Jaar. And then they transport it about eight miles southeast to Jerusalem, his resting place. And then verse 9, may your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. Now, this ark was uh, known as the footstool of God. His throne is in heaven and this ark is his footstool. Heaven is kind of like God's lazy boy and the ark is his footrest. The ark of the covenant is God's footrest. And so it literally is the place where heaven and earth meet. So yeah, this was a big deal because this being moved back to Jerusalem from Jaar meant that God is now back in town. They're taking God down from from the shelf after 20 years. And we know that it's a big deal because in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 14 when the when the ark comes into when when the ark comes into Jerusalem uh, we see David this man who could out bear grills bear grills who lived in the wild for months this warrior king who had songs written about him that he'd killed tens of thousands of of folks this manly manly man when the ark comes into Jerusalem he dances and it's not just a dance it's not just a shuffle or a sway it says here in 2 Samuel 6 verse 14 wearing a linen Ephod, uh, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. But just this phrase, dancing before the Lord with all his might, and I, I, I want you to keep that image in your mind. What does that look like? What does it look like for, um, for King David to be dancing before the Lord with all his might? Because we're going to come back to this image in a minute. So, 
what we have in Psalm 132 is a reenactment of 2 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 7, this moment when God comes home, when God is taken off the shelf, when God is transported from Ja'ar, the boonies, to Jerusalem. And as we look at this psalm, uh, we start to see a very specific structure, a bit like acts in a play. Now, verse 1 through 9 show the promise that David makes to God. And then verse 11 through 18, God then turns around and he makes a promise to David. David makes a vow to God and then God makes a vow to David. Now, now, David's vow was this, and we see this in uh, verses 1 through 9, um, specifically in uh, verse 3 to 5. And what, and what David's vow is, is he says to God, I'm going to make a house for you. And what he means is, um, God, I'm going to build a temple for you. I will build a, a, a permanent structure where the Ark of the Covenant, where, where, where your footstool, where the place where heaven and earth meet can stay. Now, we find out later that God actually nixes David's plan to build the temple. He says, really, he, he says in effect, thanks but no thanks. I appreciate the effort and the gesture. Um, and we see in First Chronicles 28 verse 2, uh, these are the words of, of David after the fact. He, he said, I had it in my heart to build the house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. But God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. And so during David's time, the ark, even though it's been transported into Jerusalem, actually stays in a tent rather than um, in the temple um, because the temple hadn't been uh, constructed yet. Uh, now, now, God wasn't angry that David had shed blood. In fact, it, uh, it, it, um, the blood that he shed led to peace for the kingdom. But, but it's, I, it seems like God wanted a peacetime ruler to build the temple to sort of mark a new chapter in Israel's history. And so God chooses Solomon, which is David's son, which is why the temple would later become known as would would be known as Solomon's temple. Now, you might think that maybe David was sad that he he wasn't able to build the temple, and maybe he was, but even though he wasn't able to build the temple, he still got together lots of the resources and the materials ready for when the time came to actually build the temple. Okay, so going back to Psalm 132, verses 1 through 10 is David saying to God, I'll build you a house, God, i.e. a temple. And then verses 11 through 18 um, is God saying, saying to David, actually, I'll build you a house, David. I'm going to build you a lineage or a dynasty or a family. So God's servant David swears an oath saying, I'm going to build you a house, I'm going to build you a temple. And then God swears an oath to him saying, I'm going to build you a house, a family, which is incredible, right? Because what this shows us is that when we take God off the shelf and when we make him central, when we transport him from Ja'ar into Jerusalem, uh, then we open ourselves up to God's multi-generational blessings on our household. When we, 
when we uh, when we bring God back from the jars uh, of our lives, from the woodland district, from out in the boonies, and when we give him pride of place, God is then in a position to do incredible work in our lives, in our homes, and in our households. Isn't that incredible that, that when you make God central in your life, that those around you are impacted? And here's, here's another cool thing, and I don't want us to miss this, okay? It was David who chose to bring the ark, i.e. God's presence, into Jerusalem. It was David who chose the location. He said, Jerusalem is where I want to make a dwelling for God. Now, it didn't have to, it didn't have to be Jerusalem. It, it, it could have been somewhere else, but this was a call that David made. And then in verse 13 of our psalm, we read this. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Okay, don't miss this, okay? David chose the location. And then God ratified David's decision by also choosing the location. It's like David said, here, let's choose this place. And God goes, yeah, that's a good spot. I like it. Why not? You see this wonderful picture of how God works with a heart that is sold out for him, that is absolutely committed for him, that is worshipping him. God works alongside with that person and their desires. And so friends, when you take God down off the shelf of your heart and make him central once again, it's like God settles into, uh, into a comfy chair in your living room and he says, I like what you've done with the place. I could get used to this. Or in the words of the Bible, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I sit enthroned for I have desired it. Don't you just love those words? Wouldn't it be incredible if those words could be true of your life? This is my resting place, God says, as he settles into your life. This is my resting place. And so in summary, when you say to God, I choose you, God says to you, good, because I choose you. And God's plans are so much bigger than yours. You see, David was thinking of a house um, which was a physical location where God could be. But God was thinking of a house of a multi-generational lineage of grace that ultimately would end up with Jesus Christ himself, who is the chief cornerstone of the house that God was created. And it started here with David. God, I just want to bless you says David. And God's like, mate, you have no idea how much blessing is heading your way. But David wouldn't have accessed that blessing that God had for him if he hadn't first blessed God by making him central and by taking him down from the shelf. So is God central in your life? And I don't mean, is he important or is he helpful or is he somewhat of a priority? That's not what I mean. I mean, is God numero uno? Can you say in the words of this worship song, God, that you have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. 
Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. Can you say this to God? Can you say to him, God, you have no rival in my heart, in my life. You are unrivaled. You are supreme. You are without challenger. Or is God on the shelf? Is he still in Ja'ar? Do people look at your life, at your relationship with God, and can they echo these words from verse 1 of Psalm 132? Lord, remember so-and-so and all their self-denial. When they look at your life, is this what they say? When's the last time that you denied yourself anything? For the sake of the glory of God. Friends, do you have the heart of Saul? Where God is on some shelf over there. You know where to find him if you need him, but that's enough for now. Because here's the thing, if God is sidelined in your life, then so is his power, so is his calling, so is his blessing. Or do you have the heart of David in 2 Samuel 6 verse 14? Do you uh, rejoice in reestablishing and reaffirming God's supremacy in your life? Listen to these words and ask yourself, is this true of me? Is this true of me? Wearing a linen ephod which was like a holy linen vest used for worship, wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Now, uh, now I told you earlier that we would be returning back here again. So, so, so let me ask you this. Is this at all reflective of your life? What does dancing before the Lord with all his might mean either uh, mean anyways is it uh, is it a shuffle is it a waltz is it a swaying from side to side with the hands raised high is that what dancing before the lord with all your might is i went to a uh, to a church boys club in cardiff wales for many years and most of the boys myself included would walk in through the main doors and we'd take our seats or we'd hang around and chat whatever but there was this one lad I can remember him I can still see his face Uh, I can still see his kind of snub nose and his mullet and his eyes and uh, uh, you know in my mind's eye I can picture him and and the way that he'd enter into the room was by running as fast as he could And then he would jump as high as he could. And then he'd crash his big boots onto the wooden floor. And as he was doing this, he said something like, woohoo, or yahoo, or something like that. And I think that that's what David was doing. He was dancing with all his might. No one shuffles with all their might. No one waltzes with all their might. No one sways from side to side with all their might. Something else is going on here because shuffling and swaying are subdued actions just by their definition. But you can jump in the air with all your might. And you can spin around as fast as you can with all your might. And you can Punch the air with all your might and you can headbang with all your might. 
And David danced with all his might. His wife, Michal, despised him in her heart when she saw this. David, you're embarrassing me. David, this is not how a king acts. David, people don't worship like that. David, have some self-respect. When's the last time you danced with all your might before the Lord? When's the last time that, that, that you took so seriously the supremacy of God in your, in your life that you vowed um, that, uh, that, that I will not enter my house or go, to, or, or go to my bed. I will not allow any sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Friends, what is it that keeps you up at night? What thoughts or plans or dreams prevent you from sleeping? What are you building for God that results in insomnia? Because here's what I know. If you build it, God will come. If you build it, God will come. And where does this building, this construction take place? Well, it takes place. This is the word of the Lord. In here and in here. First uh, Corinthians six nineteen says this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? That thing that David wasn't allowed to build. Well, this is you if you're in Christ of the Holy Spirit of God, who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, which are temples of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.19 says this, you are members of God's household. This is actually Cornerstone's um, Verse, this is where the word cornerstone comes from. This is where no grow show comes from. You are members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, as the one holding it all together. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become, here it is again, a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This place where heaven and earth meet, God's footstool, God's, God's ark, God's temple. If you are in Christ, then this, then that is how you should identify yourself. This is you. And collectively, this is us. And either God is central in your life or you've shelved him somewhere. In the words of Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be, right? That's the same uh, phrase from Psalm 132. Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And even though this is true, of course it is, it's in the Bible. But 
David in Psalm 132 shows us that when we set our lives apart for God, that God moves in. This God who does not live in houses made by human hands chooses to live in human lives. This God who cannot be contained even by the entire universe takes up residence in the person of the Holy Spirit in frail, sinful human beings like you and I. Praise God for his grace. I call this psalm a song to lead us into God's presence, but maybe I should have called it a song to lead God's presence into you. You see, for for too many of us, God is sidelined. God is on the shelf, whether it's because of fear or pride or self-sufficiency or sin or guilt. We shelve God and we say, you stay there until I need you. And the church is suffering from a deep weakness. And the church is suffering from a deep lack that no amount of programming or positive speaking or self-help or in-person services, no amount of that will fix this malady. What we, what you and I need to do is to go out to Ja'ar, out to the boonies, and to bring the presence of God back. What you need to do is to get along with God And to say to him, be my king, be my Lord, be my everything. Nothing else matters except you. Nothing can replace you. Jesus, I repent from the sin of shelving you, of locking you away, of treating you as a bench warmer, as a backup plan. Lord, I give you my life. Say to God, I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I remedy this, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob in here, in my life, in my home. And when you say that, uh, when you open your, your life once again to him, when you hang out the welcome sign and you welcome God into your living room and your kitchen and your bathroom and your bedroom and your study And you say, God, all of this is for you. When you take God down off the shelf, when you do that, God looks at your life, your shabby life, and he says, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned. Why? For I have desired it.